Good morning, Chapel Hill. Good to be with you on this second Advent Sunday. I was sitting with Chum No, and he leaned over when Bill was announcing Alpha. He said, we're doing Alpha in Cambodia. We just started Alpha, so around the world, this ministry. I hope you're paying attention to the request to reach out. This, we talk about being an inviting church. Here's an opportunity for you to be sitting at the tables of people who don't know Jesus, but who are interested enough to come. Why in the world wouldn't we want to rise up and say, I, I want to be one of those people? So even if this is outside of your uh, area of, of comfort, would you take a risk and, and stick your neck out and, and let's see what will happen uh, when we begin to greet these people these inquirers, these seekers, which we're going to be hearing something about today. Believe it or not, two weeks from today is Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah, I know. You think it's coming fast for you. It's like a train coming down the tracks towards us. There will be six services that weekend. We're going to have a Saturday night service here at 6.30, and then in the morning, a 10 o'clock service, and I think a 5 o'clock service. It's all in there. Uh, the first three are kind of uh, family-type services, and the second three... Uh, in the evening are going to be more traditional service. We need your help. May I remind you that this, we're not doing this just so that we can enjoy ourselves. This is also an, a, our witness to the community. And we need some help. And one of the coolest ways to help, and I know that the guys love this, uh, is we, uh, our Chapel Hill version of the lightsabers, where we get to <laughs> boss people around in the parking lot. Who doesn't like to boss cars around with a tool like this? So, uh, I want you to come to worship one time and bring your friends, and then I want you to work one service. And you can sign up. There's a white... Um, I might just preach with this. <laughs> this... There's a, uh, a whiteboard out there. And Would you please go out and fill out all those spaces? Don't even give anyone else a chance to fill out the spaces because the 9 o'clock crowd steps up and says, We are in. Uh, we need your help. And it'll be great. We're going to have thousands of people there that night, our chance to witness to the birth of, of Jesus. So I hope you'll be a part of that. Cindy and I were not able to be with you last week because we were on the East Coast, and we went uh, there for several reasons. Originally, we planned the trip for two reasons. One was to visit our daughter. Rachel uh, graduated from seminary last uh, June. Uh, she is, she's passed all of her ordination exams, by the way. And uh, yeah, that's pretty good. She's serving in a, a great EPC church in Richmond, Virginia, as a pastoral intern, talking again about going to Kenya. Her mom and I are so thrilled about that prospect. We are thrilled that our daughter's willing to serve the Lord wherever he calls her. We wish that God would call her a little closer than Kenya, but we'll see. Uh, anyway, we went back to see her in action. We uh, discovered that Richmond is actually quite a foodie town. Um, in fact, uh, we had a lot of really good and awful for us uh, southern food. Pastor Megan is a Tennessean. You know that, right? She's from the south. When I visited t- Tennessee with, uh, in General Assembly, uh, Megan informed me that there are five basic food groups in the south. You might be familiar with these five basic southern food groups. They are butter, sugar, cream, bacon, and fried. <laughs> and that being the case, I'm very pl- pleased to say that I ate a very balanced diet while I was... We visited Colonial Williamsburg, we visited Jamestown, all of that was terrific. High point of the trip for us, uh, as far as sightseeing, was we went to the Bible Museum. Have you heard about this? A half a billion dollar museum right in the midst of the power corridors of Washington, D.C. I found it very impressive. It ought to go on your bucket list. It was um, a fair and Christ-honoring, reverent uh, display 
And uh, I, I, it was spectacular. So, so that was part of the reason we went. The second part was this. Um, I went to visit some church planters that are doing a good work in our denomination. Uh, for the first time in, in my ministry, I and our elders are talking about the possibility that Chapel Hill should consider planting new churches. Um, we feel like the Lord might be leading us in this way, and frankly, we know squat about church planting. So I wanted to go and talk to some folks who have done it. You'll, you'll be hearing more about it in the years to come. It's actually very exciting and a little scary, but uh, I wanted to do that. Of course, there became a third reason for our trip that we had not planned on providentially, and that was that I uh, was, wanted to get in front of someone in Washington, D.C., who could help us get our whites back home to us. And um, I'm pleased to say that we have a great team that's working on this um, matter and that we have been assisted very capably by politicians on both sides of the aisle, for which we are grateful. So Derek Kilmer, his office, Jesse Young's office, Kathy McMorris Rogers' office, they've been uh, very, very helpful. But I was told through these wonderful contacts that we had, there was a chance that I could actually speak to someone in state or uh, somewhere else to uh, maybe even in the White House. And so when I went to D.C., I I was taking my big boy clothes in the back of the car with me uh, on the chance that I would get a face-to-face invitation. Turns out it didn't work out. So we came back home. I was a little disappointed. And then Monday, I got a phone call. I was sitting in Kenza getting my first Kenza fix after Kenza had finally reopened, finally reopened after years of being shut, well, months. And, um, and it was a, a call from the vice president, Pence's special advisor for national security for Europe. So I jumped up and left my wonderful chicken teriyaki to cool on the plate and ran outside so I could give her my undivided attention. And um, I had a chance to share what was going on, and she was very helpful uh, in, our, uh, in that conversation, and so we're taking all the advice that she offered us. And um, so uh, here's the deal, though. We're ready to reapply. They're ready to go back in, which is what we need to do is reapply. We have these letters of support from these politicians and so forth. Now they cannot get an appointment. The website says no appointments available at this time. Who knows what that will be? So we are... We, if they got in next week, there's still a chance he could be back by Christmas Eve. So I, I want you to pray that they get an appointment next week and that it's a favorable response and we get those darn kids back here for us. So keep praying. I, there's a PS to that phone call that I had last week I wanted to share with you. Um, after the call, of course, I sent an email of thanks to this person. I said, I realize that this is kind of a, it's, it's not like you don't have your plate full, um, and, but for that, you would take your time with what is a small matter to you, but what is an enormously important matter to us really means a lot to me, and I appreciate that. I got an email back from this person in the vice president's office. Here's what she said. I wanted to share it with you. We were happy to do it. It is important, and we hope that it works out for you all. Many years ago, the vice president had a set of rules for us when we worked for him in the U.S. Congress. The first two were, number one, glorify God, and number two, have a servant's attitude. While challenging to do, we do our best to still follow those rules now that we are in the White House. You'll be in my prayers, wishing you all a blessed Christmas, Sarah. That was very encouraging to me. I I know it's encouraging to you as well.
so I encourage and invite you to continue to keep, uh, keep praying passionately about this matter. It struck me that this gracious response that we got from a person who is in kind of the, in the circles of power in our nation provides a very striking contrast to the response of the character who plays the lead in the story that I want to share with you today in this Advent season. We've been talking about inviting God and the fact that we are called to be inviters as well. And it's a really a remarkable story when we look at the people that God invited into that first Christmas story, the story of, of his redemption. He invited a nobody, no-name little teenage girl from Podunk, Nazareth to be a part of his salvation story. He invited the scum of the earth shepherds, which is how they were perceived by Jewish society. These folks who were considered nothing more than thieves. Uh, He invited them to be among the first who were going to witness and worship to the birth of Christ. These are remarkable invitations because these are nobodies. These had no power. They weren't counted as, as insignificant in their culture. And yet God said, no, I want you. You're not insignificant to me. I want you to be a part of the greatest story ever told. But uh, today we swing to the other end of the spectrum to the story of really one of the most powerful persons in the, the land at the time. His name is King Herod. Herod also was invited to the Christmas story. His response was just a little different and a little more discouraging. I, uh, I share that reading from Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling... All the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, the wise men went on their way And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced and were exceedingly glad. And they went into the house, and going into the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
dropping down to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. As you speak through your spirit to your people over your history, we ask, O oh God, that you would speak to us today. For those of us who need to listen and avoid the mistakes of Herod, God, call us from that. For those of us who need to be more like the seekers of truth, make us more like that, God. Whatever it is that you would do with us, we pray that your spirit would accomplish it through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are taking a, an Advent break from the journey through the book of Romans. I'm really gratified to hear how that study has, uh, has blessed you. I hear it again and again. This, this study in Romans has been great. We'll be back to it in, in January. But as you know, we're taking this break for a moment uh, for this Advent series on inviting God. But if you've been... Um, in the book of Romans with us, you will, one of the things you will be amazed to discover is how this gospel, that's the good news that Paul is talking about, this good news that God through his son Jesus has sent him uh, to propitiate, to, to wash away the sins of us and to draw us into relationship with him, to, to break the back of sin. One of the most amazing things we discover when Paul is writing to them is that this gift was not just for God's chosen people, which one might have expected. It wasn't just for the Jews, but in fact, this gift of salvation in Christ was available to all people, to the Gentiles as well, to the, to the non-Jews as well. This was particularly surprising to the Jews who thought that they had a lock on this whole salvation thing, who thought that they had a lock on the relationship with Yahweh. Now for them to discover that in fact, no, God loves the whole world, that was kind of shocking to them. And this account of the Christmas story that I shared with you today is a wonderful illustration of God's love for all of his world. In our text, we are surprised to discover that God invited not just Jews to be a part of the Christmas story, we've been looking at Jews the last two weeks, but Gentiles as well. And of course, the first examples that we see are the guys, the wise men, right? Or as my daughter called it when she was a little kid, the wise guys. The first example of the Gentile worshipers of Jesus are the wise guys. And these, 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 were, these were pagan astrologers, probably from Persia, probably from modern-day Iran. They weren't just astronomers, because astronomy and astrology was all rolled into one. They studied the movement of the stars, but they also believed that the stars guided human history. As a matter of fact, the, there's a, a Greek word that I'm sure you know for wise men, which is what? Magi, say magi. And magi is the root word for what word? Magic, magician. They were viewed to be spellcasters. They were magicians, these guys. Uh, Pastor Ellis is scheduled to preach a sermon just on the magi. And by faith, I'm not going to steal any more of his thunder. You'll have to come back and Lord willing, he will bring this message himself. But as it turns out, The Magi are not the only Gentiles in this story. The other one is a surprise one to you. The other one is the king of the Jews, Herod. Did you know that Herod was, in fact, not a Jew? 
He was an Idumean. He was from the land of Edom. Uh, he, he was the king of the Jews because the Romans recognized in him a certain ruthlessness uh, uh, that, that would be very handy to them for their puppet king. So Rome appointed this non-Jew, technically a Gentile, to be the king of the Jews because they knew they could count on him to carry out their wishes in a ruthless fashion. And they were not disappointed. Herod was effective and greatly feared and despised by his subjects. He was called Herod the Great, and he served in that role. He sat on that throne for 33 years. That's a long time. Herod the Great was known for a lot of things. One of them was his building projects. He built massive projects around the, 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 um, around his, the kingdom. One of them was one that you would be familiar with. It's called Masada. Masada was his mountaintop fortress built by Herod. Another one that you may not know is that Herod was the responsible party for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. It was a pretty haggard, uh, decrepit affair when he came to power. He said, we've got to do better than that. The, Herod, you can still see Herodian stone that formed the, the wall that, that, that surrounded the temple area. Huge stones with a, with a bookmark, uh, I mean, with a picture frame surround. Um, there was one of those stones that's the size of a Greyhound bus. It's, a, it's amazing what he did in his, in his building. Of course, he taxed the heck out of the people, and uh, they didn't appreciate that, but he was known for his building. He was also known for being a paranoid murderer. Anyone that he considered to be a threat to his throne, off with their heads. He executed his own wife, Miriam, and he actually was pretty fond of her, but he thought she was a threat, so he killed her. He killed not only one son, but two sons and a third of his own sons because he considered them a potential threat to his throne. He also killed many other relatives and thousands and thousands of non-relatives whom he couldn't have cared less about. Caesar Augustus, the emperor, said of Herod, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's saying a lot coming from a Roman emperor talking about the brutality of another ruler. This is what Augustus had to say about him. So it was into Herod's Jerusalem that the wise men made what was a 800 mile, probably 40 day journey. They stepped into Herod's Jerusalem and began to ask some very unsettling questions. In fact, we read that when Herod heard what they were asking, where is this child who was born to be king of the Jews. When he heard this, we are told that he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. One of the men in my life group, when we were looking at the text this week, said, why do you think all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod? Well, let me help you with a modern-day illustration. We'll call this the MJT, the Mark James Toon version of the Bible. Imagine if you heard this. It would probably make it clearer. When Kim Jong-un heard this, he was troubled, and all of North Korea with him. Does that make it clearer? When Kim Jong-un is troubled, not only the whole country, but the whole world is troubled. If he's upset, everybody's upset because that crazy man is willing to do anything to hold on to his power. It is precisely the way that we need to understand Herod. He was the Kim Jong-un of his time. Even though Herod wasn't a Jew... When the wise men came asking questions about where this Messiah would be born, he knew exactly where to go to get the answers. So he convened all, notice that, 
all of the chief priests and the scribes. This was a command performance and there was not one that was staying home for a day off. He convened all of them together and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah prophesied 700 years ago that he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And then Herod takes that news and he has a private little meeting with, uh, with, a, with the wise men. Notice he summoned them secretly. He didn't even want his inner circle to know about that. This is the way this guy worked. So he brings them into a secret little conversation and he gives them the news and he said, now you go and you find out where he is and when you find him, bring me word so that I too may go and worship him. It may be the most cynical sentence in the Bible. Herod didn't worship any king but himself. And of course, we read that the the wise men followed the star that reappeared and continued to guide them to the place where the child was. And this wonderful image, as they walked into into the house, this modest home, we have this image of these elegant, uh, impressive uh, people from a, a far-off land who come in in their brocaded robes and they see this two-year-old, a toddler. And we are told that they fell down. The literal language in the Greek is they fell down and he put their faces into the dust in front of him. They worshipped him. And of course they gave him gifts. And then they were warned by a, a dream not to go back to Herod, so they went another way. And Herod, in his fury... Uh, ordered the execution, the slaughter of, of every child in that area that was two years old or under. So uh, it's, it's quite, a, a, quite a story. And Herod is an evil uh, reminder of just how broken this world was that Jesus had come to redeem and to save. There are so many nuances to the story. I've read it many times. I've preached it many times. Every time I read it, I find some word, some study that's different. I would love to focus on one little, one nuance that I think might escape uh, your attention uh, on the surface of it, but I think is very important. Here it is. In the early verses of the story that I shared with you, when Herod is identified, he is identified as Herod the king. Herod the king. Verse 1, Herod the king. Verse 3, Herod the king. Verse 9, the king. So it's very clear who sits on the throne, who has the power. But here's something that's fascinating. After the Magi leave him and go and follow the star to the place that it rests over where the child is, when they walk into the house, when they see the child there, when they bow down and worship him and give him their gifts, after that moment of worship, Herod is never called king again for the rest of his story. The king of the Jews, Herod the Great, simply becomes Herod. What has happened here? What has Matthew done? He dethroned him as a right. He demoted Herod. He dethroned him. The very thing that Herod was afraid was going to happen has happened. His power, his control, his throne has been ripped from his hands. And King Herod becomes Herod. It's a pity. Herod was invited into this story. He was invited in by the scriptures. He knew what to ask. He asked, where will the Christ be born? So it's not like he didn't know what was going on here. The scriptures, all of his religious uh, intelligentsia, they, they, they told him what was going on. He was invited into that in the moment. He was also invited into it when he had that private little meeting with the wise men. He could have been drawn into this in a very different way, but Herod chose not to. He was not interested 
But I want to play a little what if with you for a moment this morning. What if Herod had accepted the invitation of the, of the wise men? What if he had gone with them? We all know the Christmas carol. It's only the only carol, really, that talks about this in a way that we remember. That we sing to talk about the wise men. What's the song called? We three kings of Orient are. Say it. We three kings of Orient. Yeah, we know that song, right? Now, of course, I know they weren't kings. But it's a little more lyrical than saying, we three pagan Gentile astrologers of Orient are. You know, it just doesn't flow off the tongue. We also, I know we don't know that there were three of them. We assume that there were three because of the three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But would you just play along with me for the fun of it? It's three kings, all right? And here's the question I want to pose. What if there had been four kings instead of three? Bethlehem was only six miles away. Instead of sending the Magi as his spies, instead of plotting to kill this child to remove the latest threat to his power, what if Herod had joined the caravan? What if with them he had reacquired the guiding star? What if with them he had rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at this divine sign? What if he had journeyed the remaining six miles with them? What if he had found the house with them, walked inside with them, found the child with them, and thrown himself on the ground before the child in worship? Do we believe that Herod was beyond redemption? Do we believe that because of his murderous past that that his worship would have been refused? That this man was beyond the mercy of God, beyond the salvation that was offered to him in that unusually packaged child, king, savior? Does anyone doubt here that if Herod had thrown himself before Jesus in repentance and worship, that God would have received him? Of course he would have. Our repentance, our worship is not received because we are worthy of it. That's what Paul tells us throughout all of Romans, right? And just look at the, at the Magi for crying out loud. They were pagan, Gentile, star worshipers. And yet their worship received, was received. This was Herod's moment. Herod could have accepted the invitation and he could have become a very different part of the Christmas story. Today, we could be singing, We Four Kings of Orient are. But we do not, because he did not. Herod stayed on his throne as long as he could. He sent others to do his reconnaissance with the intent of wiping out this threat to his power. And so we honor the three pagan astrologers as the earliest Gentile converts to Jesus, and we hold in contempt the paranoid pretender to the throne who knew that this might be God's Messiah and decided to kill him rather than bow before him. I was thinking this week of something that's never crossed my mind. Here's the ultimate irony of the Herod story. He could have had it all. He could have had it all. That throne to which he so desperately clung, he could have had spiritual authority that was far greater than that puny little chair in Jerusalem. If he had vacated that throne and offered it as his gift to the Lord Jesus, if he had bowed down in worship to him, God would have given him way more than he was giving up. 
And I know that's true because God gives everyone the same offer. Everyone who vacates the throne of their lives. Everyone who submits themselves to the Lordship of Christ. The Bible makes this amazing promise to Christ worshipers. If we will surrender the thrones of our lives and humble ourselves before Jesus, not only will we be saved, we will be lifted to a place of spiritual power and authority that is far greater than anything we might ever find on this earth. Paul tells us this in Romans 8. I know we're not there, but trust me, it's there. We're going to get there soon enough. We are told that when we bow down before Jesus in Romans 8, not only do we become the children of God, a son, a, a, a daughter, a brother and sister of Christ, not only that, we are told we become joint heirs with Jesus, which means that everything that Jesus has coming to him, because he was a faithful son to his father, Everything we have a chance to participate in, we receive that too. In another place, Paul says that we will reign with Christ. That's kingship language. And and then finally, in the last book of the Bible, in the last chapter of the last book, Revelation 22, John the Revelator gives us this glimpse of what we will enjoy when of this amazing promise for Christ worshipers in the last days. He says, if he says, and night will be no more, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will reign forever and ever. Do you see what I mean when I say that Herod could have had it all? If he had graciously received the invitation of God as the wise men had, if he had humbly joined in pilgrimage to Bethlehem, if he had willingly laid down his throne and his crown and his scepter and his power, which he could never hold on to anyhow, no matter how tightly he grasped it, if he had relinquished everything to Jesus, he would have had it all and more. Forgiveness for his many sins, peace with God, and incredibly, an invitation to join with Jesus in his rule and reign over all creation forever and ever. Amen. And he blew it. That dirty dog, he blew it. He chose poorly, and everything he tried to cling to was torn from him. And so we have a chance to learn from him. You can learn from him. Herod was too lazy to even go to Bethlehem for himself. He sent others to do his spiritual reconnoitering. You're here this morning. You're in church. You're already ahead of the game because wherever you are, whatever you come from, you decided to be here this day on your own doing your own research. Good for you. And wherever you are spiritually, whatever your story is, however desperately you might think that you need to cling to your own power, to the throne of your own life, Herod's horrible choices are a cautionary tale to us. And here it is, what we most want to cling to, the right to be our own sovereign, we can never keep. But if we bow in humility before Jesus, if we offer him the throne that we can never keep anyway, incredibly he invites us to become his brothers, his sisters, his joint heirs, and he even invites us to reign with him over his father's kingdom forever. That is God's gracious invitation to the Herod inside of us. But there's some magi inside of us too. And I want to speak to that part of us, to the 
seeker of God, the worshiper of Jesus, the ones who are inclined to throw themselves on their face before the Lord because I know you are here today, more of you and the better of you in, in your own self. God is calling you, I think, out of the story to be an inviter this Christmas. I think God is calling us to, be a, to follow the courageous example of the Magi. Think about this. What courage did it take for them to approach this notoriously murderous king of the Jews and say, yeah, do you know where the real king of the Jews is? I mean, you might think that's kind of stupid, and yet, what was their name? Wise men. So, I mean, they, they surely knew how dangerous this guy could be, right? It wasn't lost on them what they were risking when they made this ask, when they made this, this, this invitation. They probably knew that Herod would not join them on, his, on this pilgrimage. God certainly knew that Herod would not join them on this pilgrimage. And yet, they invited anyhow. They witnessed anyhow. They proclaimed anyhow. And maybe one of the lessons for us is this one. Ask! This Christmas, make the invitation. Even, even to Herod, even to the Herods into your, in your life, even to those scary, irreligious, unlikely candidates as worshipers of Jesus, make the ask. They may say no, but who knows? They may end up on their face next to you in the worship of the, of the Lord. My daughter Rachel went to Boston for seminary and while she was there, she applied to work at a jazz bar, an Italian jazz bar in a nearby town. It was run by a guy that was kind of scary. In fact, she often talked to him about him as her mafioso boss. And um, he also uh, was a very irreligious man. He was not interested in hiring Christians. He was not interested in hiring seminarians because he, he called himself, he and his wife both, but he called himself an evangelistic atheist. He was against God. And actually, as you dig into the story, you discover some of the why. They lost a child at the age of four, a daughter at the age of four. And so whether they really didn't believe in God or were just so angry and bitter at him, at any rate, it was kind of a scary environment for Christians. Rachel wormed her way into their hearts. She got hired. Within three years, she was invited to their all-day Italian Thanksgiving with extended family. Come to find out that she was the age that their daughter would have been. And her love for them, her hard work, her faithfulness, her respect for their, their struggles, it gained her a hearing with these scary people. Uh, she left and went to Richmond, and then a few weeks ago she went back and took along a book to give to Mrs. Scary. It was a, a, a Bible study for new believers, for those who were inquiring, who were searching. She gave it to her and said, if you'll read this, I'll read it with you. The next day on this woman's Facebook page, she posted, Rachel, the challenge is accepted. Let the journey begin. It's not your responsibility for how people will respond to your invitation. It's not for you to decide whether they will say yes or no. Your responsibility is to be excited about your renewed encounter with Jesus this Christmas and to go to friends, maybe even the scary Herods in your life and say, would you like to come along with me? Maybe they'll say no. Maybe they'll bite your head off. But 
Who knows what Jesus might do? Screw up your courage. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you an extra dollop of his power. And make the ask. Who knows how you might change their history? Let's pray. This is an astounding story, Lord, and the contrast between the response of these kings, these three kings, and the fourth. These who, they didn't even live, live in a land where, where this was the prevalent faith, but they were hungry for you, and so they came searching. And you helped them, you guided them, you gave the star, you brought them to their scripture. And then here was the guy sitting right in the midst of everything who should have known it all. And he wanted to kill it. Lord, I I pray for those who are here this day who they are seeking. I pray, God, that your spirit would touch them and draw them to yourself in a way that they never even imagined. Maybe they were forced to come here today by wife or by husband, compelled to be here, Lord. I pray that you would, in your grace, invite them to be a part of your story and they would be irresistibly drawn. And God, I pray also for us as the inviters. We sit week after week with this incredible treasure of faith. We know we're supposed to ask, but hundreds of us have never even made one invitation. And especially not to the scary people. Would you set us free from the outcome? Would you instead give us the courage to step out this week even to the scary Herods in our life and say, would you like to come to church with me for Christmas? And then trust that you're going to do the work. I ask that you would do that in our hearts this day, Lord. In this story, we also see the, the enormous gratitude of the, of the Magi who traveled hundreds of miles and presented their treasures before, before you, Jesus. When we make our offering, it's a recreation of that moment where we, out of our worship, out of our love, out of our gratitude, we say, gosh, I want to give you the best that I have to give. So right now, in this time of offering, Lord, I pray that that's what we will do. We'll give the best that we have to you because you gave the best that you had for us. We thank you for that, and we pray your blessing on gift and giver for Christ's sake. Amen.